Welcome to the Global Elections Podcast. I'm Jason Manchester. On Saturday, June 2nd, Australia held its general election. For the first time since 1987, the Prime Minister called for a double dissolution, the simultaneous full election of both the Senate and the House of Representatives. The results of that election are, as of today, inconclusive. With both the left-wing Australian Labour Party and the Conservative Liberal National Coalition collecting 67 and 68 seats, respectively, in the House of Representatives. There are also five independents or members of smaller parties, and that leaves 10 seats that'll mean the difference between victory and loss to either side. Members of the House of Representatives are elected with a preferential ballot, which allows parties who are part of the same coalition to run against each other. Candidates compete to get more than 50% of total preferences, so the second preferences are usually what makes the difference between winning and losing. Senators are elected at large in the Australian states through a single transferable vote. Right now, we're waiting for the Australian Elections Commission to finish the count of the votes by mail. The final tally of the vote will happen this week to determine if the sitting Conservative Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, will be able to put together enough seats to keep the confidence of the House. Labour leader Bill Shorten has not claimed victory or conceded, but has said publicly that Labour has returned. To provide more context, I spoke with Liam Dutalis, a campaigner for the Australian Labour Party. This interview happened the morning after Election Day. G'day, mate. How are you? It's going well. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, yeah. I hear you just fine. Nice. So, um, tell me what happened. It was a uh, very, very exciting election. One of the hilarious things that our lovely, hopefully former Prime Minister said not too long ago was it is an incredibly exciting time to be an Australian. <laughs> and um, it turns out he was right, he just didn't know why. So it's, <laughs> it's going to be um, a very exciting um, few days ahead for sure. Yeah, so they're not counting the postal votes. Why are they not counting the postal votes? It's basically because of the postal system. It is a... Um, very much a dribs and drabs sort of affair. They're, they're relying on um, post boxes being collected, and it's just a rough sort of way to collect votes. There can be postal votes that provided they're postal stamped last Friday, so they can be anywhere. We've got remote communities who are literally in the middle of nowhere. Uh, when it's this close, all of those votes, they have to be gathered and collated, and it's just a tedious process, really. Is the expectation on uh, the Labour side that those votes will break down evenly across, or was there a swing during the election process uh, that would indicate that those votes might break uh, for the coalition or for Labour? Could go for us, because the swings have been massive, and particularly massive in some areas. Mm -hmm. So the the swings haven't been particularly uniform, and because we came from... um, Last election, we had 55 seats and we're already over 70. So it's such a massive swing in places that we hadn't expected. So it's, it's going to be um, really, really close. And some of those, um, some of those votes, uh, when they're postal votes, they're quite often connected to the people who may be needing some of the social services that were particularly on the line this election. So it's quite likely that those will be connected to us. So we just have to, um, hopefully that works out that way. Yeah, it, it looks pretty good for uh, for Team Labour, but there are yeah. it's neck and neck right now. It's uh, sixty seven, sixty seven, according to the ABC. Yes, if, from what I from what I can tell, Bill Shorten doesn't seem to be he doesn't seem to be indicating that he's going to be able to form the next government. He's taking the approach that should be um, much more amicable in the negotiation stages of if we are in the hung parliament situation, mm-hmm. whereas the big, fairly recent blunder that our current slash hopefully former Prime Minister made was that he, um, it was about a week and a half to a week to go 
he was essentially telling voters to vote for them, otherwise you could get a minority government as we previously had with Labor. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't seem to have worked out in his favour. People have still voted <laughs> even more so towards to other category and also away from them. So he's sort of shot himself in both respects. So people didn't follow his instructions and he's also burnt those people that he needs to negotiate with now. So it sort of backfired twice on him in one go. So it's going to be fun to see how he wiggles his way out of that. So, but we are looking towards Mr. Turnbull trying to cobble together a coalition with the the individuals who make up the the independents in uh, yes, in Parliament. Yeah. And they've they've been historically abysmal at that, which is precisely why we went to a double dissolution. So this was supposed to be just for the lower house and then half of the Senate, but because they're incompetent at um, negotiating with anyone who thinks differently to them, they that's why we went to this double dissolution because. They wanted to flush the system and hopefully get their people in so they wouldn't have to negotiate. So they tried to bluff their way into that and then bluff their way into stopping people from voting for them and then it hasn't worked out. So um, it's a much nicer table to be at for the Labor Party because he's pissed them off already plus he couldn't negotiate with the ones that are returning. Mm-hmm. So he's um, he's not going particularly well for poor Mr Turnbull. So who are these independents? Uh, Nick Xenophon and... Uh... Catter, Bill Catters, is that? Is that <laughs> well, they're, they're a bit of a mixture. So there's Xenophon. One of the things that he's most known for is his big push for reforming poker machines, which are like slot machines, as you guys would call them. So there's something that pulls a huge amount of money out of the lower socioeconomic people in our communities. And 70% of the money taken from those machines comes from people who are addicted one of his big issues is around that. And so he's able to be negotiated with because he cares for those people who are more likely to need some help from some progressive way of thinking. So he's one who's going to be easier to um, to negotiate with. And then some of the other ones, a little bit less so. They may be conservative ways of thinking. So we've got um, some people from the One Nation who are um, pretty much as it says, One Nation. So they want to be as white as possible, essentially. But they're still interested in um, having white people employed. So they're slightly more likely to be toward our way of thinking around employment and infrastructure and those ways of thinking rather than just the staunch conservative free market because even they know that it's bullshit. So we have got that benefit on our side as well. It's going to be interesting. The closer we get to it, it'll be the better for us. As long as the votes go your way, you don't see a problem forming the next government then? No, no. no. I reckon um, it'll be not only beneficial for people to see that it's it's not only up to the political political elite to be doing the governing but it also show that the libs had absolutely no idea what they were doing and they couldn't communicate with people who you can communicate with so they've just overridden democracy or attempted to and it's backfired and democracies has come and said well this is what we're going to do so it's pretty funny really like it's it's a lesson that they won't learn but everyone else should probably get a lot from it something that will make them um, think really hard about what they've done, but they won't know what they've done. So it'll be, it'll be fun to watch. Sure. All right, let me, let me get some background from you. What is the coalition? Like, why is there a coalition government? Because they're utterly desperate to have power. <laughs> that's that's All right. pretty much it. So they are a combination of the Liberal Party. They originated in the definitive term of Liberal, so they wanted to have like the free market type of way of thinking and they've drifted so far from that that not even they say that they're liberal anymore. 
they're broken in by what's called wets and dries. So that's they're more progressive, like the more liberal way of thinking, and then they're conservative right-wing nutters. So they're just a place for the rich white people to go and sort of get what they want. And then the other leg is the, the National Party, who were formerly like the country party. So they would be the guys representing farmers and, and those sorts of folks out in the country. It's a very um, tumultuous, I guess we use that, that would be a fun word for it, um, relationship because the Liberal Party is traditionally and even currently made up by very affluent white folks who quite often live in the city near the water. And then their other ugly cousin is the Nationals who are quite often just racist white people out in the country. So it's um, <laughs> they don't often see eye to eye and they have power struggles from time to time, but they seem to remain for the desperation of power, amicable with one another, because they know that if the coalition splits, they'll be out for a long time. It's essentially an, an anti-labor coalition, is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They've pulled the conservative votes and put them together, and they've formed this coalition. So that's, that's what they've got to keep us having to struggle even more. Because when you split their, their results up by party, they've got no hope of forming government mm -hmm. without the other. So that's their, their, their desperate hold to power. And they compete against each other in a lot of ridings, is that right? Not that, as, as few as possible. There was a surprisingly large number that, um, as I was watching the results come in last night, where they were competing against one another and closely. And that was one of the discussions I was having with um, some of the mates there last night when we were sitting around having a few drinks and, and watching it go on, was that um, I was sort of thinking about how do, you, how do they campaign against each other? It's sort of like we're saying, no, you're dumb. No, you're dumb. <laughs> Because they're, they're both idiots and they don't have a faintest idea what they're doing. They do nothing for their constituency. And <laughs> it would just be fun to watch them try and campaign against each other because it would just be baffling. <laughs> they wouldn't know what to do. It would be, it'd be fun to watch. Um, but, so tell me about the preferential voting system that you have there. Because uh, you know, you've, you've been in Canada before and, and in the United yep. States and in Britain. Yep. We don't have anything like this. Uh, can, can you yep. explain it a bit how it works? <laughs> how it works is probably a great question <laughs> if might be a better question um, so that was one of the other reasons why we came to um, um, came to this double disillusion was the liberals were sort of and we had um, a bit of some senate reform as well so they changed the way that we vote for for this election and um, that was in hope to reduce the likelihood of what's called micro parties getting into positions in the senate particularly so there was a guy, Ricky Muir, who was written off as being like just a bogan whack job, so just a crazy guy. He came from the Motoring Enthusiast Party, and he got in by microscopic amount of like 0 0.1, I think it was, percentage of the vote in that area. Mm -hmm. But because of the way the preferences flowed, and this guy ended up being in the Senate, and the particularly the Conservatives were really angry because they're like, this guy, he's not one of us. We don't know who he is. We can't control him. And he turned out to do some really good stuff. He was just a guy who um, just ran for the Senate and picked the game up really quickly and did some really good stuff. And he was not a pushover. A lot of people, like our side particularly, was concerned that he was just going to be an easy pushover and they'd just get him. But all these guys that came into the Senate just stood up and went, nah, sorry. And another one was a lady named Jackie Lambie who was, has made some fairly interesting comments, I guess would be one way to put it. Fairly racist type comments, but she's from from Tasmania, which is our smallest area of Australia, the, the little island down the south there. And um, 
yeah, just a hilarious racist type lady who um, used to be in the military. And she's just hilarious. But at the same time, the population and the, the voters loved her because she, she spoke like a local. She used language that was different to the traditional political, political spin and said what she thought. And the voters were like, oh, wow, this, is, this looks good. So it was sort of moving towards something more usable for the public. But the, the preferential voting system, you're saying that it was designed to keep independence out of the system? No, it was allowing independence to get in. Oh. So where it okay. is now is it's trying to get towards the other direction so that there's, we've had more other option independents that have come onto the scene now than, um, than they had before. So it's... Um, it's going to be very interesting to watch and see how and what they try to do to, um, to get through this. So as a practitioner, how does the preferential voting system change your strategy? Um, when you were running your campaign, you know, how, did, how did that work on, on how you directed your campaign? It didn't have a whole lot of impact on us in the, um, in the electorate where, where we were because we were so safe towards our side that we were going to win on first preferences anyway. But for some of the other ones, it meant that there was a lot of um, awkward dealings and awkward outward and awkward inward discussions. So they just essentially just have to work out how and who they're gonna gonna choose to work with. So it's um, for us, it was easy because we only had a very few people around to compete with. State it was um, more complicated in other areas, but around here it was fairly simple. We um, we just campaigned to technically target first preferences the most because that was the way that we're going to win because the second option is someone who's not almost ever going to preference us, which is the Liberal Party or the Nationals around here. Mm-hmm. In other places where it was a bit closer, where the, the Greens is another party who's closer aligned to us and the voters often have been drifting from us to them in times of displeasure with the things that we've been doing. So in those, those areas, that's where the discussions have been more complicated and working out... Um, how to make sure we get get a progressive government? So, do you work with the Greens at all? Like, in if you were in a place like uh, like Melbourne or Sydney, yeah, would you have communication with the Green team? It sort of depends on the area. They're a bit different to to us in a lot of ways, I guess. In that they don't seem to be as strategically good for the long term benefit. Like, they get a lot of criticism from our side for being unable to compromise towards moving in the right direction. So there was one of the biggest hits that they took and a lot of people in our party sort of held it against them was in um, the last minority government that we had where the um, emissions trading scheme came up into parliament and it was knocked back because it wasn't exactly what they wanted. So that really, really tested the relationship. And then that bit of legislation was changed to be the the carbon tax, which was an infamous bit of um, wording, which had a significant impact on us losing the last election. So there's a lot of our supporters are really, really burnt by that. And and those guys are sort of like, well, so what? We're not going to compromise. We need to move to zero net emissions yesterday. So let's just do it. Whereas our side is much more likely towards saying, well, we can't do that right now. We need to be working towards this. Yeah. But we can't do it right now because it's it's not viable at the moment and particularly electorally. Like if we just say that now, we have the likelihood of being even further away from getting towards that sort of good progressive policy than we were before. So it's it's often difficult to have those amicable discussions in areas where they're desperate to get a seat because they're so underrepresented 
they're sort of have to resort to these desperate type of tactics to to take the votes from us that and then make it even less likely to form government for a progressive party. So it's an interesting relationship. Do you suppose the Liberals and the Nationals have the same problem? Um, less so, but it is definitely there. They seem to be better as um, currently Conservatives seem to be around the world as they'll pull their shit together if it means that the Progressives are kept out. They seem to be able to hold rank a lot better than us. I guess it's a bit of a psychological thing that they're more able to be pulling each other into line on the progressive side, if it's rubbish, we're just going to come out and say it's rubbish. We're more likely to um, to sort of pull rank and say, no, nah, this is crap. Like, fuck off. We need to do better than this. Whereas those guys will sort of sit and toe the party line for longer. So they're able to get through that period for longer and do the backroom deals sort of more so. Liam Dutalis is a Labour campaigner. We reached him at his home in? West Walls End. West Walls End. Which is in kind of like near Newcastle. It's lonesome away from your kindred and all By the campfire at night where the wild dingoes call But there's nothing so lonesome, morbid or drear Than to stand in the bar of a pub with no beer the Global Elections Podcast is produced by me, Jason Manchester, at the James Street Studios in Ottawa, Ontario. Special thanks this week to Liam and to Maria Glavine. You can find the Global Elections Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. You'll find me on Twitter at JKManchester, and you can follow us at facebook.com backslash global elections podcast. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher if you like the show. It helps people find us. Thanks for listening. He breasts up to the bar and pulls a wad from his coat. But the smile on his face quickly turns to a sneer as the barman says sadly, the pub's got no beer.